Locked on Ducks, your daily source of info, updates, and analysis on Oregon Ducks football and basketball. I'm your host, Jordan Long, and you can find me on Twitter at TheDustOffGuy. Today we're going to preview the men's basketball game against OSU tonight, and then we're going to wrap up our pre-combined 100 mock drafts exercise. Yesterday we talked about Shane Lemieux, Jake Breland, Jake Hansen, and Calvin Throckmorton. And today we'll look at where Juwan Johnson is predicted to go. And then we'll spend the rest of the time talking about how Justin Herbert's draft stock is skyrocketing this week. If you want to send in questions or comments, you can use the hashtags AskLodPod. That's hashtag AskLodPod on Twitter. And you can also follow the show at LockedOnDucks. Please click, like, and subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a 5 out of 5 star rating. If you don't think I deserve 5 out of 5 stars, leave 5 anyway and tell me why in the review and we'll fix it for you. Now, on to the action. It'll be number 14 Oregon versus Oregon State at Matthew Knight Arena tonight. This is the 354th Civil War game, which leads the NCAA for school rivalries. Oregon comes into the game in third place in the Pac-12, with only one game separating the top five teams. If you remember last week, we talked about the top six teams and the reasons each would or would not win the Pac-12. If you missed that episode, be sure to check it out, but this week, the race is down to five teams. On last week's Pac-12 watch, USC was on the cusp, and we predicted that if they didn't win the Pac-12, it'd be because of their poor offensive efficiency against the remaining teams they had to play. But it wasn't one of the top teams that ended up moving the Trojans out of one game of first place. USC's loss uh, to the Utah Utes pretty much assures that this will remain at least a five-way race for first place. We also predicted that if the Ducks win the Pac-12, it'll be on the back of good shooting from the perimeter and out-rebounding their opponents. On Saturday, the Ducks faced off against Arizona, winning in overtime, 73-72. The reason I bring this up again is because they matched the Wildcats shot for shot on threes and rebound for rebound. The Ducks did their part in getting those three-pointers and rebounds, but Arizona ended up being terrible from the free throw line, and that really made the difference. Coming off that win is huge. The Ducks will need that momentum against the Beavers. You know, Oregon State having been bottom feeders in the Pac-12, losing three straight since their win over the Ducks a couple of weeks ago. But we all know that rivalries, whether interstate rivalries in college or division rivalries in the, in the pro sports, I mean, these kind of games are never easy. And since Oregon State coach Tinkle took over in 2014, the Ducks actually lead the series 8-7. to But in the last three years, the Ducks are 1-5. I can't imagine anything more fun for Oregon State than to play spoiler to the Ducks' chances of winning the Pac-12. And not only that... The Beavers have to be fired up coming off their narrow loss to Arizona State on Saturday. The Beavers lost 74-73, having outplayed the Sun Devils in almost every way. The matchup to watch tonight is going to be between two of the best players in the Pac-12. Peyton Pritchard and Trace Tinkle are prolific shooters. With Tinkle having 2,153 points, he's the 8th all-time in conference history, and Pritchard's 1,866 points is good for 27th all-time. Trace Tinkle is 20 points short of Gary Payton's Oregon State record, and Pritchard himself with 642 is 10 assists shy of being 9th in NCAA history, and he's actually four three-pointers short of the career top 10 spot. 
One thing to watch tonight is whether Oregon's going to be able to protect the rim and maintain presence in the paint. Tonight, the Ducks are going to have to be especially wary of 7-foot, 215-pound senior Kyler Kelly. Kelly is 10th in the Pac-12 in career blocks with 199, and he actually leads this season in the conference with 95. In his game against Stanford at the end of January, Kelly logged 7 blocks in a single game. The Ducks will have to get taller near the rim, so it's a good thing that 6'11", 230-pound freshman Nafale Dante is scheduled to be back in the lineup Thursday. Dante returned to practice Monday, and Coach Altman said that, barring any setbacks, he'd return on a limited basis for a few minutes per half. He was a five-star recruit coming out of high school, and even considered an NBA lottery pick. He started late due to a, an NCAA reclassification issue, and didn't get to enroll until December 14th. He played against Montana on the 18th and scored 14 points, two steals, two rebounds, and only 14 minutes off the bench. Before twisting his right knee during the game against Washington on January 18th, Dante was averaging 6.2 points, 2.7 rebounds, 1.5 blocks, and 1 steal per game. Coach is going to be easing him back in for sure, but it'll be great if he can make even a small impact at the rim. Another area we talked about was three-point shooting. Oregon's Chris Duarte, who's averaging 13 points per game, has had a mysterious finger injury on a shooting hand, and Coach joked about it in the loss against Stanford at the beginning of the month, but the sad fact is that since Duarte's three-point shooting has been way down since then. Before that, he was shooting over 50% and making a difference in a lot of games. He and Pritchard will have to contribute to the rebound battle and be reliable from three points if the Ducks are going to pull this one out tonight. Another standout that I should mention is Shakur Justin, who scored the final nine points in overtime against Arizona on Saturday. Honestly, despite Pritt's heroics down the stretch, which were nothing short of amazing, I'm not sure they win that game without Justin. He's been a consistent rebounder, and at six foot seven, he's been a reliable presence at the rim. He's stepped up quite a bit since that last loss to Oregon State, averaging double-digit points in that time. The Ducks need the win tonight in order to really keep competing for the Pac-12 championship. They can't drop games to inferior opponents when they're only half a game behind Arizona State. The Ducks hold tiebreakers against all the other top teams in the conference, and if the Sun Devils manage to lose a game, then the Ducks will be looking a lot better. Arizona State hasn't been this high in the standings this late in the season since 1978, but they still have to play UCLA and USC in away games. They do host both Washington teams at home, though, and given the remaining schedule for the Ducks, I think we're in great shape. That's going to do it for our preview of tonight's game against Oregon State. You can watch the game on ESPN2 at 8 o'clock, or you can tune in tomorrow for a rundown of the action. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be wrapping up the 100 Mock Drafts, courtesy of the DraftNetwork.com's Mock Draft Machine, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Jordan Long. We just finished a preview show on tonight's game, and now we're going to wrap up our pre-Combine mock draft. I have to admit that, yes, the Combine started this week, but bench press reps are already in for Juwan Johnson. And if you listen to my show on Johnson's draft preview, you remember that I compared him to, like, he's sort of a bigger Chris Godwin. Chris did 19 reps, and so ended up coming in a bit stronger than Juwan. As far as what's going on at the Combine and, and why we're waiting for all the results is that the seven draft prospects from Oregon have been arriving over the course of the week. Let's talk about those seven for just a minute. Seven is the most that Oregon has sent to the Combine, tying the years 
2007, 2012, and 2015, in which we also sent seven to the NFL Combine. In 2007, Dante Rosario, Matt Toina, and Jordan Kent ended up getting drafted. In 2012, we sent LaMichael James, Josh Cadu, Mark Asper, and David Paulson to the NFL. And in 2015, Marcus Mariota, Eric Armstead, Jake Fisher, Hronis Grasu, and Ifo Ekpre Olamu were drafted. Obviously, there isn't a lot of correlation with the number of prospects sent to the Combine and the number of players actually drafted, but it does bode well for Oregon's legacy and recruitment, especially since Justin Herbert's stock is rising dramatically this week. So, tight ends, quarterbacks, and wide receivers arrived on Sunday. Offensive linemen arrived on Monday, and linebackers arrived yesterday. On Monday, the first group, including Jacob Breland, Juwan Johnson, and Justin Herbert, did medicals and measurements, and on Tuesday, they did media appearances, with more medicals and team interviews, while Hanson, Lemieux, and Throckmorton did their medicals and measurements. Yesterday, the first group did the bench press and the NFL Players Association meetings, the second group did their media, medicals, and team interviews. And today, group one will do the on-field drills, which Breland won't be participating in. Well, the offensive line group does bench press and Troy Dye starts the process. Then on Friday, the offensive group will do the drills and Troy will do the bench press. And on Saturday, he'll wrap up with the on-field drills. There'll be a lot of information to digest over the weekend, and I'll be bringing you updated results, new projections, prospective teams, and analysis starting on Monday. Right now, though, it's time to talk Juwan Johnson. Juwan is an interesting prospect. In my 100 mock draft schematic, he was the only player who went undrafted 100% of the time. I am not convinced, though. Part of the reason for this was to learn from the draft exercise and to expose some of its flaws. And in this case, it's clear there are some things the mock draft machine isn't taking into account. First of all, this is being called a historically good wide receiver draft class, but most of the attention is really going to about 10 receivers. There are essentially three tiers. Day one receivers, day two receivers, and everyone else. C.D. Lamb, Henry Ruggs, Jerry Judy, LaVisca Chenault, and Jalen Rieger are in the first tier, in my opinion. T. Higgins, Brandon Ayuk, K.J. Hamler, Justin Jefferson are in the second tier. And then there's everybody else. The on-field drills are going to separate some of the wheat from the chaff, though, and it's really a matter of who's a real burner and who's not for that top-tier separation. There's rumored to be a lot of speed in the draft, and that's making the big guys like Juwan Johnson fall down in the rankings. With a projected 40 time of 4.59, he's not really a fast guy. For Chris Godwin comparison, remember he, Chris ran a 4.42. I just want to see Juwan run in the 4.4s. If he does, his stock will soar immediately. If he does run in the high 4.5s, as he's expected to do, it won't be much of a surprise. The Draft Network does have him ranked 283rd overall in the bottom 10 of wide receivers, and it's the same for Walter Football. 24-7 Sports, though, had him in the top 100 overall rankings and the 19th best receiver in the draft. Basically, these things are all over the place. One great source, in my opinion, is the NFL.com's draft prospect grades. Johnson receives a 5.82 rating from NFL.com, which, according to them, makes him a backup or special teams player but draftable. Early in the draft, teams are looking for premium position players or best available. Later in the draft, especially day three, teams really start to look for filling the needs. There's plenty of need around the league for big, sure-handed wide receivers. He actually tested with bigger hands, bigger reach, and bigger wingspan than any other Oregon uh, draft prospect. 
He's got great length, big hands, and that's going to bode well for teams that are looking to add depth. The Buffalo Bills are a team that, going into the 2020 season, lacked depth at the position. They're currently carrying only eight receivers, and with Cole Beasley and Andre Roberts being over 30 years old, they'll be looking to not only snag a clear number one, but they need to insert some building blocks. They're sticking with Josh Allen, and the smart money is on them using free agency and some draft capital to reinforce a defense that allowed Allen to win 10 games and make a playoff run. They're going to be looking to upgrade his weapons, and so they'll use their first pick at 22 to draft whichever first-tier receiver I named earlier is still available at that spot. The Eagles are looking for the same need, uh, and they pick at 21. And so I can see them getting, and that is the Bills, Chenault or Ayuk. But if they go with Higgins, that may be an indication that they're looking for less speed. But let's say that the Bills draft the fastest guy at that spot. Much of the criticism about Allen has come from his inaccuracy. He's been a prolific but really inefficient passer, throwing for almost 5,200 yards through his sophomore season. And with a 30-21 to touchdown interception ratio, he's got a long way to go. But with 1,200 rushing yards and 17 touchdowns, he has the tools for good quarterback play. Generally, analysts seem split on where to get him the help he needs. Some say, and this is where I tend to agree, that the greatest need is for a fast, deep threat to open up the field, allowing Josh to have more opportunities. Another thought process is that he needs taller receivers who are big enough to bring down those 50-50 balls he keeps chucking up. John Brown and Cole Beasley had career years for Buffalo last season, and as I mentioned, Beasley is aging a bit, and Brown is only a year or two behind him. They are both under contract for the foreseeable future and are excellent, excellent veterans to build around. They're both sub-six foot, which isn't itself a problem. After all, OBJ is 5'11", Deshaun Jackson is 5'10". But bringing in an elite, speedy receiver with their 22nd pick would fill the void that one of these guys is going to be leaving behind, while adding a weapon that can be used on day one. Getting open is one thing, but the question of getting someone who can catch in traffic for a quarterback who struggles at times is still an issue. I think it'd be a mistake for Brandon Bean to be hunting for someone who can, quote, do it all. Get your speedy, shifty guy who's going to be a rookie standout, then spend your next couple of picks beefing up a line that allowed the seventh most sacks last year. Then you can get a guy who's big, great length, huge catch radius to come up under the tutelage of some free agent like Alshon Jeffrey or, or an A.J. Green. They have nine picks overall with one on day one, two on day two, and six picks on day three. With so much rear-end capital, they'll be looking to fill needs rather than best available at that point. They may end up trading some of that to move into the you know late day one or early day two, but they should still have something to spend on the back end. With the 181st pick in the 2020 NFL Draft, the Buffalo Bills select Juwan Johnson, wide receiver from the University of Oregon. I've got to take a quick break when we come back. We'll be talking about Oregon's top draft prospect, Justin Herbert. Welcome back to Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Jordan Long, and we're talking pre-combine draft prospects. Don't worry, I know the combine is this week, but we'll be updating the rankings and projections as results come in over the weekend. I think Justin Herbert is one of the most interesting draft prospects this year, and not just because he's an Oregon Duck. 
He was a walk-on from Sheldon High School who grew up watching the Ducks. I believe his grandfather played wide receiver for the Ducks at one point. He's played for three different coaches using three different schemes and has grown, matured, and evolved exponentially despite these setbacks. When he first declared for the draft, most analysts had him going late in round one, if that. Due to a lot of speculation in the current QB market, Tua Tungavaloa's hip injury and Justin's outstanding performances in the Rose Bowl and Senior Bowl, his draft stock went way up. Some project him going as early as 6 to the Chargers and had him as late as number 13 to the Colts. And if you remember my pre-draft predictions, uh, I had him going at number 13 to the Colts. At the beginning of the week, I was okay with these projections. But in fact, the 100 mock draft simulation I ran had Justin going overwhelmingly to the Colts. He also went to the Chargers 18% of the time and 10% of the drafts went to the Buccaneers and the Panthers. There was some interest by the Dolphins and the Titans, but this week's interviews have solidified a lot of what I've been saying all along about him. We're going to get to that in a minute, but let's address a few of the mock options here. There's rumors of Philip Rivers going to the Colts as well as Matt Stafford heading to Tampa Bay. If the Colts land Rivers, they won't need a new quarterback, but the Chargers certainly would, and if Matt Stafford goes to Tampa Bay where I think he'd be a good fit, in fact, there's a great discussion on this on Locked On NFL show from yesterday. But if Stafford leaves Detroit, then they'll be in the market as well. Carolina insists that they're going to stay with Cam Newton, but it sounds like one of those things coaches say around this time of year to increase interest in a player. The Giants don't seem too high on Daniel Jones, as they seem to be shopping guys like Tom Brady, and they haven't yet committed on Jones's fate in any combine interviews yet. There's also reports that Dwayne Haskins' bad study habits and lack of work ethic have soured the Redskins on him, and with Ron Rivera's new coaching situation, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think they'd want to trade Haskins and draft another new quarterback, you know, for a fresh start in a new system. Joe Burrow, who jokingly tweeted that he was going to retire after his hands measured a minuscule 9 inches, is skipping the workouts, saying he's going to wait until LSU's Pro Day next month. And Tua, who's reassured teams that he'll be fully cleared on March 9th, is going to wait until his pro day at Alabama to show teams what he's made of. That leaves Jordan Love, Jacob Eason, as pretty much those left in the conversation along with Herbert. A lot of the worry about Herbert was that he lacked the leadership and confidence of elite quarterbacks. And for those of us who've been following him, and we've talked about this when he was named the practice player of the week at the Senior Bowl, but... We've seen that he has every tool available to the best quarterbacks and that he's been more than capable of leading his team. The walk-on aspect, the various coaches he's had to work for have created this narrative that he wasn't quite ready for prime time. But I think he put all that to bed this week during his media interviews. He talked straight up about his situation, acknowledging where he came from, how he got here, the kind of confident leader he's become. You know, I want to thank NFL.com and the Combine press conference for this audio, but let's listen to what he had to say about it. I'm a different person, to be honest, and um, I, I think the kid that showed up at the University of Oregon is, is, isn't me anymore, and, um, you know, there's, there's aspects of my game that have changed. Um, I've, I've become more vocal I've, I've become more outgoing and, and there are things that uh, you have to do to be to be a quarterback and the way the quarterback carries himself um, I think that I've done a great job of, of, of becoming that over these past four years uh, I want to come out here I want to do everything um, have fun get better uh, learn um, and I think it's all about the long haul so uh, anything I can do to, to extend my game um, is, is what I'm going to do a lot of it's uh, about never being under center a lot of it's never about 
being in the huddle. And so those are things that in college I never got to do. And so it's, it's stuff that I've had to address uh, these past two months and, and stuff that I've had to learn. I know that I've been doing my best to, to, to continue to become a better quarterback, do everything that I can to, to fix my game. And um, whatever happens in, in the draft happens, and um, I'll be just excited to play football. It's pretty clear from this audio and, you know, if you listen to the rest of the press conference, that he, he reflects a desire for learning and, and significant maturity. It's not arrogant, but confidence. He even acknowledges how it sounds cheesy and politically correct, but he says he means it when he says he wants to play for as long as he can, no matter where. He talked a little bit about working on his mechanics and said that Really, he's watches tape on Matt Ryan and compares himself to Matt Ryan a little bit uh, as far as fixing his mechanics and improving you know, hip swing and shoulder mechanics and these kinds of things. My personal comparison is to Carson Wentz. You know, as a big receiver who's mobile in the pocket, progresses through his first couple of reads and is able to escape and make throws on the run. He's decisive. He's confident. I'm just really excited to watch this guy going forward. And when you contrast his media day with Burroughs, you could see how Burrow comes across as arrogant. He initially didn't say whether he would play for Cincinnati. And then when there was a little pushback on it yesterday, he said, of course. He said, of course he'd happily play for the Bengals. But but what what's missing from Burroughs' narrative that you get from Herbert is that he'd be happy to play anywhere, and he wants to play for as long as he can, and that he welcomes any opportunity to play football. At no point was there any doubt about Justin's commitment to the game, commitment to whatever team chooses him. Also, the Bengals took a great deal of interest in Justin Herbert after his time with them at the Senior Bowl, something that made him look pretty good against opposing quarterback Joe Burrow. And also, the Bengals have shown themselves to prefer a company man, Uh, with Andy Dalton and I'm not by any means comparing Andy Dalton to Justin Herbert like I said I already think he's more like Carson Wentz and he personally compares himself to Matty Ice but like I said yesterday as the final combine reactions come in my homerism meter tends to go up with the number one overall pick in the 2020 NFL draft the Cincinnati Bengals select Justin Herbert, quarterback from the University of Oregon. Thanks for joining me as we finished up reviewing my 100 mock draft scheme. Obviously, the closer we get to the combine time, the better it gets for the Ducks. Uh, tomorrow, we'll be doing a rundown of tonight's game against OSU, and we'll be reporting on the first set of results from the combine. We're also going to preview the third-ranked women's basketball team as they play the Cougars at home Friday night. You can find me, Jordan Long, at the Dustoff Guy, and you can follow the show on Twitter at LockedOnDucks. Please send in questions and comments using the hashtags AskLodPod, that's hashtag AskLODPOD, and click that subscribe or follow button. This has been Locked On Ducks, your daily source for info, analysis, and updates, and part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Have a great day, and go Ducks!